Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you on this beautiful 22nd Sunday of Ordinary Time. At least uh, it's beautiful where I am here in Menlo Park. And I am out for a morning walk, which marks the first time in the last few episodes of this podcast that I've both been walking and that it has taken place in the morning. But this is a walk with a purpose. I'm, uh, I'm walking to a local parish nearby, which I've forgotten the name of, but at least I think I, think I know where it is. Uh, I went there once before. I went there this summer when I was here for the uh, summer retreat, summer spirituality program, it's called. We had Sundays free, and so we could go out to different parishes in the area for Mass. And I went to this parish once, and I, I, I'm pretty sure it has the Great in the name. So I think it's either St. Albert the Great or St. Gregory the Great. But, uh, you know, it's a real problem for Catholics. We have too many great saints. It's just difficult to keep track. <laughs> anyway, whichever great saint it is, uh, I went there once for a Sunday Mass. And um, it, was a, it was a Byzantine Catholic liturgy. So what that means is, um, you know, within, for us in the West, when we hear the word Catholic, very often we just, um, you know, automatically hear Roman Catholic. The whole Western branch, the Western half of the Catholic Church is the Roman Catholic Church. We celebrate what's called the Latin Rite of the liturgy. Now the Latin Rite is no longer exclusively in Latin, so sometimes that confuses people. (laughs) You might, you know, you might ask somebody, oh, are you a Latin Rite Catholic? No, I go to Mass in English or Spanish or what have you. But no, in the West, we're all part of the Latin Rite. Now it's celebrated often in the vernacular uh, in many places, but it evolved sort of, it's a a translation and an adaptation of the original uh, liturgy of the Latin Rite, which goes all the way back to very soon after the time of the Apostles. Now, that's the tradition of the West. But, as we know, the Church originally kind of developed and spread throughout the world during the the glory days of the Roman Empire. And it adopted a lot of the structures of that empire. Um, You know, as you would, if you are expanding throughout the world, evangelizing peoples and, uh, and founding churches, at the same time as this great empire, you're going to make use of the already existing structure, your social structures and things that are in place. So now, as an example, uh, the church is organized in what are called dioceses. The word diocese comes from the, uh, the, the, the Roman term for a territory, a territory of a certain area, kind of like what in the United States we would call a state. <laughs> or a local province that was a Roman diocese. That's just an example. But as we know, in the Roman Empire, especially in the later days of the Roman Empire, there's the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. The Western Empire, of course, centered upon Rome. The Eastern Empire centered upon what was called at various times Byzantium or Constantinople, or now Istanbul. So, in the East, they kind of developed their own traditions. Um, they're equally ancient, and they have apostolic origins. I mean, they can trace them back to the time of the apostles or soon after, just as we can. But their traditions developed sort of independently, just because there was such a great 
distance, both geographically and culturally, between the western half of the Roman Empire and the eastern half. And so, uh, in the east, you have a great variety of different rites. Um, and they, they typically vary by language or by the area where they originally uh, evolved or came to be. So one of them, you know, there's, there's several you can attend nowadays. For example, there's the, the Russian Divine Liturgy. There's the Greek, the Greek Byzantine Divine Liturgy and so on. Uh, Byzantine, the word Byzantine just refers to Byzantium, the city of Byzantium, the capital of the Roman Empire in the east. So all of this to say, uh, this mass that I went to one Sunday, quite innocently, ended up being a Byzantine Divine Liturgy. I believe Greek Byzantine, although I'll have to double check that today. I don't really remember because they also celebrate their liturgy in English, in the vernacular, which was kind of a surprise. But it was a welcome one because my Greek is uh, very minimal. <laughs> and my Russian, well, even more so. So uh, in, the, in the Eastern Divine Liturgies, there's a number of things that are a little bit, well, you know, we can say different uh, to, the, to the Western Divine Liturgy, the Latin Rite. The differences, um, I, I would not say are essential, but they're a little bit more than superficial. So what does that mean? Well, in the essence of what we believe and what we're praying, because as the, as the old maxim goes, the law of prayer determines the law of belief. Lex orandi, lex credendi. So the way we pray shows and helps to shape what we believe. So uh, the East and the West, we believe the same things. We're all part of the same Catholic Church. And the Eastern Catholic Churches are under the authority of the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff, Pope Francis. So this, this is not Eastern Orthodoxy. The Eastern Orthodox Churches are their own, their own thing. Uh, they separated from the Catholic Church in 1054 AD. So that's another part of the confusion. It's like, was this Catholic? Yeah, they're, they're totally Catholic. Uh, so they believe the same things that we in the West believe, but they express them in a little bit of a different way. And the expression is important, um, you know, so that's why I say it's more than just superficial. Uh, a, a superficial difference would be the difference between, uh, like, someone, so you could have someone in the Latin Rite who celebrates the Mass in English, or you could have the Latin Rite celebrated, potentially, in Greek. <laughs> Okay, this is getting a little bit confusing. I know, but bear with me. So we could be doing exactly the same thing, saying the same thing, but it's in different languages. And that's kind of a superficial change. But I would say the difference between the Latin Rite and the Byzantine or Eastern Divine Liturgies um, are a number of changes that are more than superficial, but not essential. They sing the whole liturgy, uh, and they have these beautiful, beautiful Eastern tones for singing. Which, uh, which I just love. I love to hear. And so, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add an example of a Byzantine hymn to this podcast when I edit it later on today so you can hear it for yourself. It is really, really marvelous. It sounds very mystical, kind of a haunting, you know. Um, yeah. This is a wonderful, wonderful sound, different to our own Gregorian chant tradition. And, you know, other things, they, they uh, repeat the name of the Trinity all the time throughout, throughout the liturgy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each time they do, everyone bows and makes the sign of the cross. 
they have a different tradition for making the sign of the cross. They do it the opposite way that we do, from right to left rather than left to right. And uh, so anyway, these are just a few, few examples. If you'd like to learn more, you can certainly look it up on Google or find a good book to read. Or try to find an Eastern Catholic Divine Liturgy to attend yourself. So that's what I'm off to this morning. And uh, right now, as I'm speaking, it's 10.35. The uh, Divine Liturgy is at 11 o'clock. So I should have plenty of time to get there, presuming I don't get lost along the way, which is always a possibility when you're me. <laughs> so what I um, would like to talk about today, now that I've exhausted my tangent through Byzantium, is uh, I'd like to, to just share with you an experience I had yesterday and uh, something that I've been reflecting on a little bit since then. So, uh, as you know, as seminarians, we have, we, we, we are being formed in the seminary according to four different pillars, or what some people call dimensions of formation. So the four different pillars are the intellectual, or academic, uh, the spiritual, human, and pastoral, or ministerial. And so it's, kind of, it's sort of self-evident, if you think about it. Um, if you imagine the four pillars, like four legs of a table, you know, holding up the table. Okay, so you have, you have the, uh, the spiritual pillar of formation. And that encompasses, uh, you know, really, this is really the most important. So it's a little, that's why I think some people call it dimensions rather than pillars. Pillars implies that they're all like, they've got to be the same height, so the table's level, and they're all e equally important. Really, the spiritual is the most important. Um, the spiritual dimension of formation is what takes place mostly interiorly through our contemplation, love and contemplation of God, our interior life of love and intimacy with the Blessed Trinity. Um, we are formed and guided in this by our spiritual directors through our conversations with, with whomever we've uh, selected or been assigned to help guide us in the spiritual life. We make progress in this by uh, our progress in prayer, growth in the virtues, especially in, in charity and love, fasting, penance, abstinence, all of these good things. That's a spiritual dimension. And I say it's the most important because the whole goal, so if, you know, if we're called to be priests, obviously we're called to serve the church. But our primary call is to be saints. Uh, our primary call is to be saints. And the first, you know, the most essential thing about a saint, the foundation of becoming a saint, is the life of love with God, to know God and to love God. If we're gonna, if we're gonna make other people know God and bring them to love God, we better know Him and love Him first ourselves. That's the spiritual. Then we have the human formation. And the objective or goal of human formation is basically, um, in the words of St. John Paul II, so that uh, the priest of the church may be a bridge and never an obstacle. So all of us, especially me, have, uh, you know, whatever it may be, personality quirks or certain traits or things that we may have learned, habits we may have picked up, just things about us <laughs> that uh, may be difficult, you know, may, that may not be a perfect bridge, that may constitute an obstacle for the people of God. And so... The point of human formation is basically 
to uh, to iron out all the wrinkles, to yep, remove any stones that might be uh, in the path, and to try to be you know the, it's basically formation as as Christian men to try to be the best men that we can be for the sake of the people, so that everything about us is open like a two way street. We're open to the people and we're open to God, so that people can come to God through us and God can come to the people through us. Now that's human formation. That one's probably the most, I would say, subjective uh, or vague. You know, I mean, not it's it's very very important, uh, but it, you know, the way your human formation plays out just depends a lot on who you are and who your human formation director is and the kind of feedback he gives you and so on. That's that. Intellectual formation is kind of self-evident. Um, it's the part that most people think of when they think of seminary. We're taking classes, we're studying the scriptures, studying theology, all these good things, writing papers, you know. This is this really takes up a lot of our time, maybe the majority of our time. And it's very, very important as well because, um, you know, we're not, we're, we're, we're called to be spiritual leaders, but um, to be, to be a, a effective and authentic spiritual leader, you have to be familiar, be conversant with the tradition of the church. You know, especially the great intellectual tradition, which has been handed down to us from the time of the church fathers. So we've got to know, and we've got to be able to explain and provide a rational defense for the faith, um, to explain like why things are the way they are, and to really know deeply ourselves, to engage with, yeah, with the intellectual side of the tradition. Um, so that's very important as well. And then lastly, uh, pastoral or ministerial formation which is what allows us to kind of have hands-on practical experience of we, what it's like out in the trenches, what it's like in our parishes or in other ministries of the church. So, um, yeah, so pastoral formation each year, basically we, we, we get a pastoral assignment to which we will report um, every week over the course of the school year. And we'll be doing a certain job, probably working under a supervisor at the local, whatever the ministry may be. Um, so different ministries could be like teaching RCIA classes at a parish or teaching religion classes at a Catholic high school or middle school, things like that. So, um, for example, last year, I, I was very, very blessed and, and happy to be working at a parish doing high school youth ministry with two of my seminarian brothers from Mount Angel. We had a great time. And one of those guys from that group actually has just entered seminary in the Archdiocese of Portland. So that's pretty cool. He was one of the high school uh, youth leaders in the youth group. And by the end of the year, he was applying to join the diocese. It's like, wow, God, you're really doing great things. So this year, what my ministry assignment is, is um, working with the missionaries of charity. That would be Mother Teresa's religious order. And uh, I've never met them before in real life. I've just seen pictures of Mother Teresa. So it was kind of a shock to arrive there. I went there for the first time yesterday. Arrive at their house, ring the doorbell, and the sister comes out and she, she just dressed exactly like Mother Teresa. <laughs> She's wearing the white, you know, linen like sari with a blue stripe around the edge. Just like a, it's like a single, long single piece of fabric is pinned at the side of her head, and um, 
it's just kind of a shock to see like, wow, is that Mother Teresa? No, but it's her daughter though. <laughs> so um, we, the, the, there's four of us who were assigned at this ministry this year. The ministry that, that they do for the church here in the Bay Area is they run a hospice care house. So it's a licensed, um, you know, it's all, all official um, hospice care center. It's all volunteer-based, so they don't accept any money for what they do. They totally run um, on the charity of volunteers and on, you know, people donate food and things to the community. And um, they take care of often homeless people or, or the poorest of the poor who have nowhere else to go in the last days of their life. And they're also licensed to provide care for HIV and AIDS patients who are, uh, you know, terminally ill. Maybe they're not officially on hospice, but basically, um, you know, they're not going to recover. So this house is also licensed to, to take care of them. So um, we, we arrived there yesterday. We arrived there just as the sisters were finishing their holy hour. Uh, they one of their holy hours, I should say, because I think they spend at least two hours a day uh, in prayer and contemplation before the Blessed Sacrament exposed on the altar. And uh, so we arrived there, and the sister in charge welcomed us. She said, uh, oh, we're sorry, brothers, we changed our schedule, so we're just finishing the holy hour. But please, you know, come in and join us. You can pray with us for another ten minutes or so, and then we'll get to work. I said, okay, it sounds great, sister. We went into their little chapel. This uh, very simple yet very beautiful little chapel in, in their home, their convent, where the Blessed Sacrament was exposed on the altar. On the, on the wall next to the crucifix were the two words, I thirst, which Mother Teresa requested that uh, every convent of the Missionaries of Charity should have those words on the wall in their chapel. I thirst to remind the sisters, the missionaries, um, that Jesus is is thirsting for their love, and uh, both both in His real presence in the Eucharist, thirsting for their love, their adoration, and in the the person of the poorest of the poor, who they're called to serve. So we went into this little chapel. And uh, there were about six or seven of the sisters, probably the whole community were there. We were all kneeling on the floor, barefoot, adoring the Lord. And so we went in, uh, prayed in silence for about 10 minutes, at the end of which they had uh, what's what are called the divine praises. So it's, it's just a short litany of prayers that probably every Catholic knows. You know, at the end of adoration, this is what most any parish or anywhere you go, they'll recite these prayers. Blessed be God. Blessed be his holy name. Blessed be Jesus Christ, true God and true man. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be his most sacred heart. Blessed be his most precious blood. Blessed be Jesus in the most holy sacrament of the altar. But then, after that line, you know, me and the other seminarians are prepared to go on to the next line in the liturgy, um, or in the litany, which now that I've interrupted myself, I can't remember what it is. But the sisters 
introduced uh, an extra line just then. So profound. So, blessed be Jesus in the most holy sacrament of the altar, the Eucharist. And then, blessed be Jesus in the poorest of the poor. That really struck me and, and affected me. I was thinking about it and kind of chewing it, you know, mulling it over. But uh, shortly after that, after our time of adoration, we went over to the house. So the sisters have their convent, and then right next door, although I think not attached, but maybe it's attached, I don't know. Right next door is the hospice care home. So we walked over to it, and the sister in charge was showing us around, introducing us to a few of the patients. We met a man there who was, um, well, for one thing, he was totally deaf. So, totally deaf, deaf from birth, he could communicate, I mean, he could communicate by sign language, but of course, you know, none of us seminarians uh, knew sign language. So he could also communicate by writing on a whiteboard. So, we were trying to have a little conversation with him, uh, using the whiteboard, (laughs) explaining who we were and introducing ourselves. So, my brother Ian wrote, uh, we are seminarians, period, gave him the whiteboard. (laughs) <laughs> this guy gave, gave us a big thumbs up and then he wrote, sounds great <laughs> so we're having this little conversation with him so he was deaf, he's also basically bedridden, now I don't remember if he was on hospice or not but the impression I got was that he was basically, you know, nearing the end of his life he's preparing for death he's bedridden and um, he he needed something, it was clear, but he couldn't like for whatever reason, he just was having trouble expressing to us what it was that he needed. And uh, he was getting kind of agitated and we couldn't figure it out. So finally another volunteer came who spoke sign language. He was able to talk to him a little bit and discovered that what this man needed was to have his diaper changed. And so, uh, you know, we were there about maybe 15 minutes after we had just arrived at this hospice care home and help, helping this guy uh, change this other guy's diaper and then helping him get dressed uh, and putting, you know, putting his bed back flat so he could lie down and getting comfortable. So uh, it was, I, I was um, reflecting a lot after that moment, you know. After that, he said goodbye. We headed out, went back to the seminary. In the car on the way back, we were praying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Um, and as we were praying that chaplet, I was just I was just hearing in my head the voice of these sisters, you know, praying, Blessed be Jesus in the poorest of the poor. Blessed be Jesus in the most holy sacrament of the altar, and blessed be Jesus in the poorest of the poor. You know, I was... I was feeling two things. I was kind of humbled, first of all, I was humbled by just the brief uh, experience of briefly meeting this man who was so dependent upon others. He, first of all, could hardly even communicate what it was he needed. So to have, to have that freedom of communication stripped away, that already in itself is like, wow, that is a huge sacrifice. <laughs> so that's a really a hard burden. Then on top of that, completely bedridden, he has no freedom of movement, not even enough freedom of movement to be able to get up and like go to the bathroom 
or like swing his legs off the bed and be able to like put on his own pants, you know? He's completely dependent on others for the most basic necessities of life. And so I was kind of humbled by that. Um, I was also humbled by seeing the way that these, these sisters, you know, uh, there are like six or seven of them in the community, and they're going around taking care of the people. And of course, you know, their, 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 their work, their primary work that you can see from the outside is taking care of these men in their physical necessities, you know, who are, who are basically dying, getting ready for death. But there's also like an intense and, and very important, equally important, interior and largely invisible work of just loving them. It's like uh, what, what they're doing exteriorly could be done by anybody. But loving the poorest of the poor, that was Mother Teresa's mission. That's what the missionaries of charity are all about. Missionaries of charity, missionaries of love, you know? And not just about taking care of people's bodily or like material needs, but their spiritual needs. Loving them, introducing them to God, praying with them, feeding their spiritual hunger as well as their bodily hunger. So uh, I was humbled by that, seeing the way that these sisters were able to love Jesus and the poorest of the poor. I was thinking, wow, how often do I get frustrated get annoyed with somebody, whether it's a brother in the seminary or someone in my own family. And uh, I was thinking, wow, you know, how easy it is to love Jesus in them compared with loving Jesus in these, in, in, in these people who are, first of all, strangers, second of all, um, really needy. They're never able to really pay you back for the work that you're doing for them. Uh, some of them smell bad, you know? <laughs> I mean, everything about them physically is like off-putting. But yet, these sisters, and they're in the intensity of their life of love, their interior life of love with God, you could say their spiritual formation, they're constantly loving Jesus in these poorest of the poor. The other day at the Office of Readings, we had a little uh, sermon from, I don't know, one of the church fathers. I can't remember who it is now, <clears throat> but a very ancient scene of the church. And he was writing about the necessity of, of, of giving alms, or, you know, like not just giving money, but like doing good works for the poor. And he kept making the point several times throughout this short sermon. He said, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to have ornate sanctuaries and to, to give our very best to the liturgy and the best music and so on and so on. But remember the words of Jesus, what you did for the least of these, you did also for me. And what you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. He said, so imagine if you were Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, of course. This <laughs> church father wrote this very beautifully. But this, this is my paraphrase. So imagine if you were Jesus, and uh, they're setting, they say, Oh Lord, we see that you are hungry. We see that you are thirsty. And they set you this beautiful table with you know, cups lined with gold and fine, crisp, you know, white altar cloth and candles. Set this table, but then they leave it empty. <laughs> Here, Lord, we've set all this for you. 
well, wouldn't you think you were being mocked? You're being insulted? They're not really taking care of what you need, you know? This, this author, this patristic church father uh, author was really hammering home the necessity. Yes, the necessity of the acts of religion, the necessity of having good things uh, in the sanctuary to worship God. But equally so, the necessity of taking care of the poor, doing good works for the poor. And that the two, the two are not opposed. That's what I was most impressed with about the missionaries of charity. You know, I, I've never had a ministry assignment like this one before. Um, in the past, I've always been teaching or working with youth or things like that, you know, which I really love, I really enjoy. But um, at this assignment, you know, I was so impressed by the way these sisters are living out both of those lines in the divine praises, blessed be Jesus in the most holy sacrament of the altar, two hours a day, every day, in addition to the mass and the liturgy of the hours, but like the Carmelites, you know, with their two hours of mental prayer, every day, coming to kneel before Jesus in the Eucharist, just being alone with him in silence, in prayer, contemplation. But then also, and as they walk, you know, in the hospice home, there's also a chapel. Every time the sisters go by, they genuflect, no matter what, no matter what they're doing. It's a beautiful witness. But then also, in everything that they do for these men who are at the end of their lives, they're loving Jesus. That, that, that interior, that living flame of love in their hearts, which is burning so brightly, so ardently, is pouring out its warmth and its heat upon these men whom society has forgotten, whom our society would just as soon say, you know, let these men die on the streets, or let's just kill them now, euthanasia, you know, remove the burden from society. No. These men are tabernacles of the living God. And these blessed sisters are adoring them, adoring Jesus, present in the monstrance of the hearts of these poorest of the poor. So suffice it to say, I was really, really inspired, affected, edified, and uh, challenged by the witness of these good and holy daughters of St. Teresa of Calcutta. I'm really, I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm really, really excited about doing this ministry this year. And um, yeah, I, I'll leave you with that, with that story now for you to reflect on because I've just arrived at St. Albert the Great Catholic Church. St. Albert. Uh, that's the name. So, in conclusion, let us just pray together for a moment. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and ever-living God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit down into our hearts to enliven and kindle in each of us the living flame of love that everything that we do, whether in prayer, in study, in work, in service, may be done out of that unfailing love, the burning furnace of charity for you, most blessed Trinity, you who are our creator and the end of our lives. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Christ is good, and he loves